right, so we're in this one-week talk. Uh, it's not a series. We're jumping into this one-week talk today called Nonsense. And we'll read a scripture here in, the, in a minute where we get this idea from. But isn't it interesting, if you look throughout culture, especially where we are now, uh, there's a lot of sort of attacks being made at the credibility of either the resurrection or the scripture. And we're going to actually dig into it this morning. We're going to look at, you know, is it nonsense? Is this whole thing ridiculous? You know, what, what are the facts behind some of it? And I hope that you leave here this morning uh, a little more stirred in your faith that, uh, that, yeah, you know, this is legit. And like what it said is, wouldn't it change everything if this was true? Wouldn't it change everything about our lives if we could have this faith or this knowing that, you know, this is true and this is something that we can run with? And so before we start with, with any kind of talk, um, we first have to sort of dive into um, one, the scripture, but of course the story of the resurrection. And so if you have your Bibles or if you have your smartphone or your iPad or some kind of tablet um, to follow along, go ahead and flip to Luke chapter 24 and we will read 9, uh, we'll read to 11, but we'll skip verse 10. But let's start in verse 1. It says this, Luke chapter 24, verse 1. It says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Verse 4, when they were wondering about this, suddenly two men clothed that, in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? For he is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, on the, and then on the third day raised again. Then they remembered his words. The scripture says, then they remembered his words. Verse 9, when they came back to the tomb, they told these things to the, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. So they went, they noticed, you know, the tomb is empty. They talk to these men who are shining like lightning, this whole thing, this whole correspondence. And then they go back to the other disciples and the others that are around there. And in verse 11, skipping 10, they say, but they did not. So they told all this to these people, verse 11, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. Any husbands in here like, I can relate to that. <laughs> didn't, didn't believe those women because their, their words are so, okay, okay. I don't believe that. I was just asking if you did. I'm not, I've never had that experience. Okay. Especially not with a pregnant wife. I mean, like everything makes sense right now. <laughs> uh, so verse 12, Peter, however, got up, ran to the tomb, bending over. He saw the strips of linen laying there by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. I pastored at a church, I was a youth pastor at a church in the South, and the South is a little more rowdy about church, especially where we were at. Um, we were in a church that was called a Word of Faith Church, and so very charismatic, and it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for somebody in the service during the music to actually get up and like run a lap around the whole building. And uh, I, that, you know, that stuff, uh, I'm, not, I'm not like saying, oh, that's ridiculous and I'm not against it or whatever. I probably wouldn't do it unless like angels came and carried me and ran me around. Uh, I'm not opposed to it, and I don't think it's unbiblical or anything like that, but I'm just saying in that movement, um, they were very expressive and they were very, 
and uh, they did this thing on Easter when we were there. The pastor got up, and, and we weren't from there. We didn't know anything about that place. Uh, we're from Michigan, and so we had moved down to Carolina. And so uh, it's Easter, and the pastor gets up, and he says, uh, he is risen. And everybody just automatically shouted back, uh, he is risen indeed. And maybe some of you have had that happen in church, or maybe we've done it here. And there, again, nothing wrong with it. But this immediate, he's risen, he's risen indeed. And I started thinking, if you look at like this story of it, there's, there's words in here that don't make that reaction like right away. You don't have that just like, so when the story first broke, somebody said like, oh, their words seem like nonsense. And then it says that Peter went away wondering. He went away wondering, like, I don't know, how did all this happen? I have some questions about this. There wasn't this quick, oh, he's risen, he's risen indeed. And then everybody... There was a lot of like questions about it because there was a lot of nonsense that surrounded it, if you will, right? The scripture here that's saying like to them, it seemed like nonsense. Can I let you in on something? It was nonsense, right? Can we like, oh, you're getting your stones out. You're getting ready to hit me. (laughs) Like it was, there was some nonsense taking place. Uh, The definition of nonsense is this, something that makes no sense, conduct or action that is absurd, That is the story, in a way, if you will, without crucifying me and let me walk through this over the next few minutes. You could say that about the story of the resurrection. A man, like we just saw in the video, that we heard in the video, a man who died and three days later rose from the dead to save us of our guilty sins when he was perfect. Like, what? Nonsense. Who's with me? Like, this is crazy. Okay? And so the thing about it is this. Everything that we believe as Christians or everything that we stand on as believers, it all boils down to the resurrection. Everything that leads up to the resurrection, if the resurrection didn't take place, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, everything else doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Okay, and so the scripture says it in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 4 in the New Living Translations. It says, and if Christ has not been raised then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. Useless. So now we are basing everything that we believe as Christians on the fact that Jesus died three days later, was raised from the dead, which seems like total nonsense. And the scripture is telling us, oh yeah, if that nonsense didn't happen, then all your preaching and all your believing is useless. So now here we are as a community going, Everything I believe is based on this resurrection, which seems like nonsense, but the scripture over here is saying is, if it didn't happen, everything you believe is ridiculous, and so here we are as people going, where do we stand in this? How do we prove this? How do we know this is true? And if I were to ask you, hey, how do you know that the resurrection is true, or how do you know that God is who he says he is, and everything that's in the Bible pertains to, how would you know? Some of us would say, well, because it's in the Bible. Well, how do you know the Bible's true? because it's in the Bible. The Bible says the Bible is true. It's the inspired word of God. Well, how do you know that? Right? These are the questions we start asking when you start talking about nonsense. And so I think it's important for us to go all the way back to the beginning of scripture and go, okay, how? Let's start with the Bible. How do we know that the Bible is true? If our Christianity is based on the resurrection being true, how can we know that? How can we have a knowing of this amidst all this nonsense? Uh, Let's start with the Bible. Skeptics will say that the Bible we read today is nowhere near what was actually written down, that it cannot be trusted as an accurate description of history. Here's the thing. There's actually a few 
methods that you can use to test the reliability of ancient literature. So the first thing we're going to look at is this thing called the ancient literature test. I want to stop you here too, because, and we'll read it in a minute. But the scripture says that you as a believer should be able to, to give an account for the hope that you have, or you should be willing, or you should be able to give an answer uh, to the things that you believe. And so I'm going to go through some of this with you, but I really want you to try to retain it and remember it and write it down and make it a part of your life. Because as a believer, when somebody says like, oh, you celebrate Easter, the resurrection, why? You, we want to be able to point back to this stuff and go, here's why. And so check this out. We're going to do this. We're going to take a look at what the scripture says about ancient literature tests. Here's the deal. This is what's true and what the, the, the scholars are trying to say. We actually don't possess the original manuscripts of the Bible. So that part is true. We actually do not possess the original manuscripts of the Bible. All that we have are copies of copies of copies of the Bible and people question who would believe that this is accurate. And what we need to know is this. It's the same case when you talk about original manuscripts of anything else that we believe in ancient literature. So what I'm saying is this. Everything that we believe about history, that we teach in our schools, that we believe to say, yep, without a doubt, this is ancient history. This has been proven. This is factual. All of those things have also been manuscripts that have been handed down and copied over time. And those things that I'm talking about are Plato and Aristotle and Caesar. Uh, they're all copies of, but no original. And so the Bible is no different in that regard. So if anybody says, well, the Bible, you can't believe it because it's a handed down manuscript. A Everything else that we have is the same way. Somebody say, got it. So that's your first defense. But what we're going to look at is the bibliographical test to see how is this true? How can we prove it? How does this stand the test of time as historical events that took place and they matter and they exist? It's called the bibliographical test. And the first thing is you have to take a look at the numbers of copies of the documents that we look at. And so here's how I want to do it. Here's what I want to point out to you. These authors that we have here that we speak of as history, okay? Uh, some of you will probably recognize them because you learned them in school. These ancient documents right here that we consider to be history, we teach in our schools. So these are documents. These are things that we say, hey, these are fact. This is history. This is the real thing. And so what we need to do, the two tests that we look at, you can leave that up there, guys, is you look at the number of copies and you look how closely dated the original is to the copy. And so that's where we have it written out here. You see, here's where it was written. Here's the earliest copy, and here's the amount of years in between, and here's how many manuscripts you have. And so, of course, you see at the bottom, the strongest would be Homer. And so everybody stands on that, and they would say, you know, that there, uh, it only had 500 years in between. And so uh, 400, you know, the 400 gap there is 500 years in between, and there's 643 copies that all are congruent and go together and prove that this is historical evidence. So now take a look at the New Testament. Throw the next slide up there. If you look at it, the difference between when the original manuscript and then when you had your earliest copy, it's 8 to 30 years in between. So in their testing, they're saying, hey, th and then look at the amount of copies that they have. So, so literally, the history test that says, how do we know this is true? How do we know this is factual? How do we know? The test that you look at here, the Bible stands alone compared to any other history or ancient test that we have. The Bible is light years ahead of it. Somebody say that's true. So the earliest copy dated around 25 years old. Some say it's as close as the eight years there. 
the, they say that there was around 24,000 copies, but others believe uh, that it could be closer to 30,000 copies. So the question is this, this test tells us that the Bible is unparalleled in comparison to any other historical book that we consider to be factual proving evidence. Scholars say it's in its category alone. The Bible, the New Testament, the description of Jesus and the events that took place stand alone versus anything else uh, that we have literally through all of our history. Another thing, because of the closeness, uh, because of the eight to 30 years there, because of the closeness of this, they can test the Bible based on another thing called the legend theory. And what it says is this, because the Bible was eight to 30, these copies started coming in eight to 30 years after uh, Jesus lived, it means that legend, people would have defunct it if it was a legend because the people were still alive that were talking about some of these things. So my example would be this, because they would take these copies and they would take the scrolls and they would read them in their communities and out in public places. If somebody's out there going, and then Jesus turned water into wine on the day, and then somebody was there and that didn't happen, they would go, wait a minute, what are you talking about? I was there, you didn't. And so the legend of the theory says that because it was so close in date, those people still lived. And so it, the Bible withstood another test that the others have not, again, proving itself to be true. Does that make sense? So the copies, another thing that is, is strong in the legend theory is that the copies were meticulously copied by the Talmudist. And what this is, is it was a learning age range, kind of like we have a school, and uh, they would take them through these different phases. And then uh, the Talmudist would make copies very meticulously. Check out how much they were serious about writing these copies. It would say this. They counted, here's what they believed. They believed that they were copying, because they were, the words of God. So when they were sitting down and they were making copies or, or multiple of this, they were saying, right now we need to take this serious because we're literally copying the words of God. Uh, check this out. So for every letter, every syllable, every paragraph, uh, they counted every single one as they went. So they didn't just write it out. By the end, they would be able to know every single number, letter, paragraph, and make sure it was all in its place. Check this out. They would not answer a king if they were writing these copies. So literally a king or a government would come to them and while they're writing these things and putting these things in place, they wouldn't even respond to the authorities because they believed that they were making copies of the word of God. If they put these things in place and they followed this much detail, would you think they'd be that invested in a story that never happened? Who would give their life like this much detail to something that never took place? They actually said about the Torah, the Old Testament, uh, they would wear it on their prayer shoals, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, but they would also call the, they would refer to the Torah as the way. And so to them, scripture and, and, and these, the, the, the ways of God and the New Testament living, this was their life. It was the way. Um, another thing we need to look at before we get a little more practical here is the tomb evidence. I think I could go on and on, and of course I only take about a half an hour, but I could go on and on and on and on about how the Bible is, is historically accurate, and, and it passes every test that's been given to it. Um, there's a great guy out there who um, was an atheist. His name's Lee Strobel, and if you're interested, he spent his life being an atheist, and eventually, by looking at science and by looking at creation and all of the different things, he could no longer say 
hey, the Bible's not true. This didn't happen. It, it literally changed. And now he goes about speaking in defense of the gospel in the Bible because when he looked at all the evidence, he's like, this is accurate. This is true. We don't have anything else like this. So look up Lee Strobel, The Case for the Creator, if you want to know more about this kind of stuff. But for time's sake, we'll move on to the next piece of evidence. It's called tomb evidence. The four gospel accounts that we have all give us a snapshot of what the tomb scene looked like. We can piece together the evidence based on what was investigated. Here's some pretty cool facts about the stone. The scripture says that there was a large stone that was moved in front of the tomb. And so here's one way that historically we can say there's no way that this was faked or made up or it was some fairy tale to make the disciples look good or anything like this. Here's one way that we go, there's no way it's possible, is the stone that was in front, the first thing that the women would have noticed would be that the stone was moved away and it wasn't covering the tomb. Historians believe that the stone could have weighed close to a ton and could not be moved by less than several men using a lever and a pulley system. It was rolled into a groove in front of the door of the tomb and locked there. To move it, a lever would have had to been lodged under the stone and moved by several men using considerable amount of weight. When the women showed up, the stone was gone. That's the thing too, is the stone was gone. And so here, and so Matthew's account tells us that, the, that God moved the stone via an angel or an earthquake. So totally out of the way, uh, totally moved. And, and here's the uh, thing that I want to kind of set up. Oh, actually, let me get into the second part. So the stones moved. Historically, that's insane. Like in an overnight for that stone to be moved is insane. We'll keep going. The guards, the Roman guards who moved it, um, it says this, that the tomb was guarded and protected 24-7 by a Roman guard of at least four men. So you got this massive stone, which is hard to move as it is, as it is and then they put these men in front of it. So these four men, and it says that they took turns sleeping to protect the tomb day and night. If they failed in their duty, they were executed, sometimes by burning in a fire that was started by their own military clothes. The tomb was also sealed with the Roman seal, which stood for the power and the authority of the Roman Empire. It was a rope put over the stone and connected to the tomb by a big X. To break the seal is to incur death upon yourself by upside-down crucifixion. The seal was broken and the guard was gone. The Bible tells us that because of the fear of the angel, the guards ran. Here's what I want to set up. Imagine if there's this guy walking around named Jesus, the Messiah, claiming to be the Messiah, with massive crowds following him. Here's what you need to know about the Jesus following too. When he went somewhere, land to land, city to city, and a thousand people followed him, you have to remember something about population. Population at that time was, was so much smaller than what we would see now. And so nowadays, if Jesus walked in those amounts of them, you'd be talking about hundreds of thousands of people following this guy. And so when we read it and you say, oh, a couple hundred followed or a thousand followed, you'd be, you, back then, you'd be like, this is crazy. This guy is shutting down streets. Like the publicity between the, uh, behind the people following Jesus, it would be insane. So here's what I want to point out. The Roman Empire has now, yes, uh, they've made a decision and Jesus was crucified and then he's put in this tomb and now he's being guarded by the Roman Empire people with all of this publicity. Do you think that a couple of guys would have fallen asleep so that the disciples could have come in and moved the thing and like really pulled off a good one? 
No, of course not. Those guys were the elite. They were chosen. They were like, hey, we need to make sure this thing stays closed and we need to make sure we end this story. We need to make sure we're the ones who look good and come out on top and we're the right ones. And so there's no way that there's this story of like, well, you know, the disciples came and jumped a couple guards, the disciples, like some old fishermen, you know, some fishermen, some former fishermen guys and some, you know, no, they, they couldn't have competed with the Roman Empire. They couldn't have even touched. And so this whole idea of, well, maybe, you know, they beat him up and they moved the stone and they took Jesus' body. You don't understand the eye that was on this and the intensity that was put on it. There's just no way possible that it was like a quick job that was done. Somebody say amen. So then we have the women's testimony. One of the strongest pieces of evidence that this resurrection story is true is the fact that the women were the first one to break the news. Everybody says, well, you know, the whole uh, writings of the, of the New Testament are to make the disciples out to be this or out to be this, or, you know, this whole fairy tale. Here's the thing about even the women being the first one there. If someone were to make up a story because they wanted a risen Savior, though he was actually dead, they never would have put the women at the tomb first. Women had absolutely no credibility in culture, and their testimony would not hold up anywhere, especially if you wanted to believe their story. So why would, if you're setting out to make this great story and make this whole thing, why would they choose for the women to be the ones to give the first testimony? It just doesn't make any sense. And so that's one thing throughout history. They look at the strength of someone's testimony, and they say, hey, there's no way that this would be a fabricated thing that would you know, build them up to be this big false fairy tale story. There's just no way that they would have chosen women. Another part of it too is the empty tomb. Probably the biggest piece of evidence is there was no dead body ever found. The authorities did not want the news of a risen savior to travel. And they had, and they had to do all they, they did all that they could do to produce a body. Think of it, you know, the Roman, it's rolled away and the seal was broken and the guards are gone. How many, you know, how much energy do you think was put in at that time to find the body? And then nothing was ever found. I mean, if you talk about a search and a history, okay, and so all that was put in place and then no body was ever found, of course, until Jesus' appearance. One of the strongest pieces of evidence is Jesus appearing to his disciples. The strongest piece of evidence is the fact that Jesus, after his resurrection, reappeared he appeared to over 500 different people in different situations for 40 days post the resurrection. And some people say, well, those people were hallucinating. Uh, they were having hallucinations or they were whatever. But here's the thing. Some of you that went to college and maybe participated in events that cause you to hallucinate, don't raise your hands, please. Don't raise your hands. <laughs> but how many of you have ever heard of people having the same hallucination? Especially 500 people all have the same exact account of some type of hallucination. Especially in 40 different days, all these different, it's just not a plausible thing. But Jesus showed up and over 500 people, and again, imagine that number in terms of population. He saw a ton of people over 40 days that all say the same thing, which leads us to our last defense which is that the disciples literally saw Jesus alive walking on earth for 40 days after his crucifixion. They walked with him, ate with him, listened to him. Uh, we know that Thomas was even able to touch him. Jesus invited him into the resurrected body. And here's the biggest deal, is 10 of those disciples died martyrs' death. And if they were just to make up a story about heroism, we want to be a martyr and we want to be a hero, 
There's a cold case forensic guy who studies all these cold cases, and they look back at like testimony and they go, uh, okay, if somebody's making up a story or somebody's going to make up a thing to make themselves look like a hero, they look at how they write about themselves and what was said. But if you go all throughout scripture, the disciples who died martyrs' deaths, they didn't die in a glorious big send-off. They died martyrs' deaths. And the other thing about it is if you read the teachings about themselves, they don't put themselves on any kind of pedestal. Most of the fake made-up stories, they, they make themselves out to look great. One says, I'm the priest, I'm the chief of all sinners. Another says this in the stories of Peter denying Jesus. All of it doesn't really make them out to be any kind of hero. Why? Because they died for what actually happened, not because of some fake story that they made up. Somebody say amen. They did a Lee Strobel in his study. He got cold case people uh, who study this for a living, and they looked back at all the evidence. And they said that the evidence that exists for not only the Bible, but for the story of the resurrection, it literally would stand up in today's court as factual. In cold case investigation, uh, it, would st- it would hold up in court, the story of the resurrection. Uh, Lauren, I'll have you come play. Check this out. Jesus is the most documented human in history. You go back and you say, okay, there's all, you know, there's probably an error. We've probably missed something. But Jesus' life is the most documented person in human history. Don't you think by now, if it was all made up, if it wasn't true, if it was just some fantasy, if it was just something, don't you think by now the nonsense would have been uncovered? Amen? Historians even use the Bible to rediscover geography places islands. They would refer back to the book of Acts. Why? Because the writers were so detailed and so uh, took it so serious to make everything 100% accurate that, that they said, man, this is such great writing that we can use this to rediscover islands in different places. Why? Because they laid down their lives for something that was true. Somebody say amen. I, uh, this painting over here, Amy, who does some cool painting for us, we're in this, you know, talk called Nonsense. And I said to Amy, it's like, hey, Easter's coming up. I talked to her about a month ago, a couple weeks ago maybe. And I said, hey, we're doing this thing. And uh, it's really cool when you minister with your art. I would love for you to, uh, to come up here and do another piece. And uh, so I just said, you know, I didn't even tell her about Nonsense. I just said, we're in this series talking about the defense for the Bible and the cross and blah, blah, blah. And um, it'd be really cool if you just, whatever God leads you to do. So I check in with her in about a week, like, hey, do you have any ideas? You know, is there anything cool? You know, that you... no, she's like, I'm stuck. I don't, I don't have anything. I don't, okay, hey, no worries. We got time, no big deal. And then, uh, hey, what do you got? What do you got? What do you got? And, and so she texted me yesterday. I was like, Josh, she's like, all I'm feeling is something like this. Now she just painted this during worship if you couldn't see it. But she sent me a picture of something like this. She goes, but I keep coming back to this right here, this. And she's like, I, I'm, I'm stuck because it, what does it mean, <laughs> right? And I know you say that about all art. Some of you are like, I know what it means. I see it. <laughs> you don't, trust me. Uh, so she's like, here's where I'm at on all this. I said, you're blowing my mind right now because a lot of the graphics you saw us use, which she never saw, the graphics we already chose way in advance that you saw today on screen, the spinning stuff, all was called watercolor Easter. And she used watercolor color. Like it was in our backgrounds. It was in all our stuff. I was like, you're kind of freaking me out right now. And I said, here's what else is crazy. She's like, I feel so led to continue making this. But like it doesn't. And I said, well, it's nonsense. 
It's not, it's not coming out to, but I feel, I'm feeling inspired. I feel this thing. I feel, okay. Turns out, here's what I want you to get. Sometimes in our walk with God and, and putting a bow on the resurrection and all of Jesus alive or whatever, all that stuff, we like to equate everything to this truth. And we, we prove, you know, we talk about the Bible being this truth and talk about it. But here's what I want you to know. Sometimes God on display in our life feels a little bit more like nonsense than it does truth. But guess what? We're still his masterpiece. This means a ton to Amy. She was like, I feel this. I feel, I'm inspired. She's like, and I'm having fun. And I did it. And like, and it was speaking it because it's her creation. So it may feel like nonsense, may feel like this thing. But sometimes that's our walk with God. I don't get it. I can't figure it out. I can't put it all in place. But that's why the scripture in Philippians 4, 7 says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. God's truth is sometimes bigger than our equations. So it's like, it's a truth that Jesus died and rose again, but it seems like nonsense, but it's all a part of God's masterpiece in our lives. Amen. I thought about it like this. Only in a world where faith is difficult can faith exist. So when you talk about believing and understanding, only in a world where faith is difficult can faith exist. Otherwise, it's not faith. Amen? Here's what I would say to you today. If you're like, I don't know if I believe. I don't know if I da-da-da-da-da. Here's the deal. It takes faith either way to believe in God and to believe in the resurrection and to believe what we believe about Scripture takes faith. But it also takes faith to not believe and to deny and to push all these other things away. Because honestly, we all go back to the beginning. How did we get here? Who was here first? God or just things floating and there's all these things about it. Either way, you're using faith to make up what you believe. I just choose to believe that God loves me and cares for me and wants me to live a life full of grace and compassion and forgiveness and love for others who wouldn't want to choose that side. Amen? I thought about it like this. Uh, you'll have to bear with me. We were in Los Angeles, and I'll try to say this as fast as I can. I'll show you a picture here in a minute. We were in Los Angeles with our youth group, and um, we were serving at this place there called a Dream Center and uh, served the inner city of Los Angeles and sort of cleaned up the streets and did some ministry and stuff like that. And when we were done, there was about 30 of our students from our youth group and we were in this motel in Los An- or hotel in Los Angeles, and behind the building was like sort of a hangout area. There was a couple tables, and uh, and so we were all done with the trip, but we had one day left. And so I had the youth group out there, and I was telling them like, "Hey guys, so proud of you! You did great this week. Uh, here's what we're going to do tomorrow." And we were surprising the students. Uh, by taking them down to Hollywood Boulevard and just kind of showing them some cool things to LA. And so they didn't know that was going to happen when they signed up for the trip. And so we're sitting there and I'm in the middle of the talk and I'm just telling them, yeah, so here's tomorrow, here's the agenda. And this guy comes busting into where we were. And what's really interesting about where we were is there was these really tall 10 foot, 12 foot walls all around us. You couldn't see us. You couldn't hear us. People wouldn't have known we were back there. And so that was behind the hotel, but to even get there, you had to go through the parking garage, big parking garage, Los Angeles, of the hotel. But before you even get to that parking garage, you had to walk around two strip malls to get to this motel where this guy was sleeping. 
So we're sitting there, we're debriefing, all of a sudden this guy just walks in. He's about, about 50 years old, and he walks in, and he's like, I made it. And, uh, and the, again, about 30 of our students, and, and I'm like, okay, you made it. Hey, what's up? And uh, right off the bat, he goes, um, I'm so depressed. He's like, I want to kill myself. And he said, somebody over there told me that I needed to come talk to you guys. Nobody knew who we were. Nobody knew. We weren't even talking about any kind of like preaching. We didn't do any service. We didn't. So right away, all of us like, oh, this got real. And then for me as a youth pastor, I'm thinking, I just told all the kids we were done ministering. Like, oh, we're all done. It's over there. Now we're going to. And uh, so this guy showed up and he's dead serious. He's like, I just, I'm going to kill myself. Someone over there told me I needed to come talk to you. Okay. He says his name's Tony. And we sit him down and we start telling him why we're there and we're helping other people and that we love him and that we care for him. He starts crying. He's crying. He's 50 years old. He's crying. And uh, he says, he's sitting in the middle of us. He says, I've never experienced any love like this. I've never felt this before. Nonsense. It was nonsense. But I've never felt this before. He couldn't prove it. He couldn't tell me what he was feeling. He couldn't tell me this, that. It was nonsense what was taking place. God was taking place. We can't explain it, but God was taking place. And so we prayed for him and we led him into salvation. And, and he gave his heart to the Lord and turned out he was homeless. He was ready to kill himself. Turned out he had a computer engineering degree. He had two twins. He was married, uh, had a great life. Alcohol took over his life, and he then lived out of his van. And he was doing the day job stuff down at uh, the hardware store in Los Angeles with nothing to show. So we prayed for him. We led him to the Lord, and Jess gave him her Bible. And uh, we were going to church the next day. And so I said, hey, we're going to come pick you up. And we're going to take you to church with us, like 30 of us. We're going to go to church, and it's going to be a good time. And don't worry about it. It'll be really cool. And, uh, and so we knock on his motel door. And I'm not kidding. He was, like, still sleeping. And he comes to the door. He's like, I didn't think you would actually come, <laughs> you know. I don't know why he's Italian. He was actually Hispanic. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so we pick him up, and we're driving him to the service. And he keeps saying, why are you doing this? Why do you love me? And the biggest thing, why do you even care? Why do you even care? Take away everything about the Bible. Take away everything that we said about Scripture. Take away all of that kind of stuff. I believe resurrection life still takes place in encounters and moments like this. We can argue the Bible and we can make bumper stickers and we can do all that kind of stuff. And it's important and we should know Scripture, not belittling that at all. But how, what's the greatest defense for God? God on display. So we took him to church and he had an incredible time. And, and before we left, we, we gave him some, some money and some food and some stuff and got his number and made sure he'd be able to keep minutes on it so we could talk to him and get back to Michigan. And I would get drunk calls in the middle of the night from him and he'd be struggling and he'd be having a tough time. Go ahead, put the picture up. Just so you can, the guy there in the middle, Tony, uh, that's who we're talking about. And, um, about a year after being there, Tony called me on Easter. And because of his alcohol addiction, he couldn't see his kids. He hadn't seen his kids in years. He called me on Easter and he said, Hey, Josh, you're not going to believe this. I'm going to church with my kids. To me, you want to prove that God is real and that everything is true? Find stories. Engage yourself in stories like this, where it's undeniable that God moved on somebody's life. 
There's people sitting in this room. It's nonsense that they're pregnant right now. Somebody in this room right now that was told you're never going to be pregnant, it's done for you. And they're expecting their first boy. That's not us, but... (laughs) There's somebody in this room right now when they leave, Amy, who was painting will leave when this service is done and go upstairs and pick up a child who the doctors told her will not live in the hospital. She's not going to live. She won't make it. When they left the hospital, the doctor said, it must be God that she lived. There's people in this room, Sam Hope, five years ago, who helped us plant this church, was wheelchair bound. And the doctors told her paralysis is her future eternity. To lighten it up, her husband, Scott, next to her, 25 years ago, was following the Grateful Dead, living out of a van. <laughs> Do you know what his goal was? To live to 25. That was it. He was partying so hard, listening to good music. <laughs> but he helped us plant this church 25 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever it was. Who would have ever thought if he said, hey, Scott, um, I know you're enjoying the show, but do you know that in 25 years you're going to help plant a church in Zealand? He would have said, nonsense. Nonsense. People all over this room, I think about David. David Alberts walked in the doors today. In August of this year, David Alberts over here was in a coma and he was agnostic. And now he's here every Sunday and he's a part of our addiction recovery group. Amen. <laughs> Here's the deal. The scripture says this, 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I love the end part there that says, do it with gentleness and respect. Because what it's saying is this, don't be the bullhorn guy who just gets up there and yells about the scripture that gives you hope. Be someone who's able to say, hey, You know what God's done in my life? Here's why I feel like he's alive to me. Because I had this horrible thing happen and I was still able to have joy at a funeral. Like, oh, that's sick. I can't believe you would say that. No, there's a peace of God that transcends all understanding. Amen? So give an account for what gives you hope based on your encounters and experiences with God. And again, I'm not belittling scripture. We use that. That's our jumping point. Psalm 139, I would say this to you this morning. We've all heard this saying, I would rather live my life believing that there is a God and find out that there isn't than live my life believing there isn't God and find out that there is. Somebody say amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? you bow your heads and close your eyes, I want to give you an opportunity to respond or to engage with God and what he may be speaking to you. Some of it may feel like nonsense, like, oh, I can't, can't believe I, I feel a tugging on my heart to respond to God, or I can't believe um, the sermon spoke to me that way, or I can't believe I have these feelings. It could be nonsense, yeah, but, but God sometimes, oftentimes, thrives in our nonsense. Amen. I want to encourage you in this. The Bible is true and the Bible is accurate. 
and the best part about the Bible is that it says that God has a plan for you and he cares about you. The scripture says in Psalm 139, 14, it says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Statistics say that 130 octillion things need to happen from conception to birth for you to make it here. So from when you were conceived to when you were birthed, 130 octillion things needed to go just right for you to make it here. You're not an accident. You were created for a purpose by a God who loves you and cares about you. 130 octillion is 130 with 27 zeros behind it. That's how many things had to perfectly line up. God cares about you. And he doesn't want to see you just go through life going through the same old, same old. He, the scripture says Jesus came to give you life and to give it to you better. So this morning, if you're here and you say, today on Easter, I want to respond to a God who is risen. If you're here, I'm going to give the opportunity to choose to be a Christ follower, to choose to make Jesus Lord of your life. What does that mean? It means that you're going to be someone who's on pursuit of God, or you're a Christian, you're choosing to become a Christ follower. Scripture says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you'll be on your way to heaven. So with nobody looking around, if you're in here this morning and you say, I want to pray that prayer, I'm not going to embarrass you, not going to have you come out of your seat, not going to have you do anything like that. Just on the count of three, I'll have you raise your hand so that I can identify you and pray for you. We're all going to pray as one big group, so nothing to embarrass you, but we want to make a point in your heart with God that, hey, today is the day that my nonsense can can maybe start to make sense when we put God in the equation. Amen. So if you're in here with nobody looking around and you want me to pray that prayer for you on three, raise your hand. One, two, three. Anybody in here? See that hand? Anybody else? See that hand? Awesome. You can put your hands down. If you're in here and you say, we're going to kind of pray two ways this morning. If you're in here and you say, man, I'm in the middle of nonsense and I I don't know how to get out of it. Listen, we serve a God. The scripture says Jesus was sleeping during a storm. There's a story of him in a boat and he's sleeping during this storm. And they say, hey, wake up, Jesus. We need you. There's a storm, the waves, the chaos, the crazy, the nonsense. And he gets up and he says, be still. God can say, be still to your story, to your situation, and he can calm the waves and he can walk you through nonsense. Amen. So I want to pray that out too when we pray. So all of us together, let's say this. Say, God, today I choose you to be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to walk with you in new life. In Jesus' name, amen.